Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at anchor.fm slash allingospel or visit the allingospel.com website. All right, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 30 tonight. Uh, the blessing and promise uh, to bring a savior to the world has gone to Jacob, and he's been promised that there'll be a nation, many nations that come from him. Um, but he's had to learn a few hard lessons along the way. Um, and he has, uh, most notably, he was tricked on his wedding day and had the wrong bride in front of him and with him that night and uh, then had to uh, continue on to get the daughter that he loved, which was Rachel, and marry her too. And this has caused some problems. At the... Uh, coming back to the core thesis of Genesis was Adam and Eve sinned, and Ad, and God said to Eve that there would be a savior, that, that she would give birth to someone that would step on the head of the snake, that would be that would conquer or remove this curse from humanity. Um, so we've been looking at that the whole way along. So these genealogies are really important. So we're going to start out tonight in chapter 30 with more um, who made who kind of things. And we ended chapter 29 with the first four kids. Uh, we had Reuben, which went, meant behold a son. We had Simeon, which meant to hear, God hears me. We had Levi, which means attachment. Um, and then we had Judah, which means praise at the end of chapter 29. And all four of those came from Leah, who was the unloved wife, or the wife that was not the one that Jacob picked. Um, but apparently, he at least four times, he was able to uh, um, go to sleep with her and make babies, uh, and that sort of thing happened. But we'll move back to PG-13. Um, chapter, verse 1. And I'm going to move through these fairly fast. I, I don't know if there's too much to add, but if you think of anything, please take a note, and when we get done... Like, if you see lessons in here that I'm not seeing, I'd love to know what they are. So, verse 1. Now, when Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, Rachel envied her sister and said to Jacob, Give me children, or else I die. Which is pretty extreme. You get to see a little bit of Rachel's character there. Verse 2. And Jacob's anger was aroused against Rachel, and he said, Am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit from your womb? Um, so, he said... Here's my, so she said, here's my maid Bilhah, go into her, and she will bear a child on my knees that I may also have children by her. This is like Hagar with Abraham in Genesis 16. On my knees refers to a practice that a servant or a slave girl would be impregnated by the husband, but then when she gave birth, she'd actually sit in the lap of the mom. So it's really weird for our culture, but it was a way to not only symbolically say, this is the mom's kid, you're a surrogate mother, but it was also a, a the mom could be there for the birthing event, which sounds really odd, but it did happen. <clears throat> Notice in verse six that Rachel celebrates the baby as though it's hers. So there was no doubt as to whose baby it was. 
when you do that kind of surrogate mom thing. Um, <clears throat> then she gave him Bilhah, her maid, as, as wife, and Jacob went into her. And Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. And then Rachel said, God has judged my case, and he has also heard my voice and given me a son. So she, she really owns that son. Therefore, she called his name Dan, which means to judge. God has judged my case. Um, there's no confirmation of this from God. Remember, this is just Rachel proclaiming that God has heard her, God has seen her, God has done that. We don't see that God actually is speaking in these narratives, but Rachel is sure pro proclaiming those things. Verse 7, Rachel's made Bilhah, which means, by the way, Bilhah means troubled. Uh, why you would name your kid that, I don't know, but conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. And then Rachel said, with great wrestlings, I have wrestled with my sister, and indeed I have prevailed. And she called his name Naphtali, which means wrestling. So the tribes of Judah do not have these amazing names. You'd think they'd have all these great, wonderful names, but they don't. Um, so now at this point, we have four kids from Leah, two from Bilhah, uh, which Rachel claims. So it's a four to two score. And this feels almost like a back and forth football game, right? Like they're competing, there's full competition with each other, which is, I, I remember last week I said there's never... The Bible reports polygamy, but it never really reports fruit from that or good things. Mm -hmm. So this kind of competition in the home had to be pretty miserable for Jacob. Um, and the other thing is I have prevailed. I don't get why she's prevailed when she's still behind by two <laughs> with a four to two score. So Rachel's not good at keeping score either. <laughs> Unless she thinks her kids count double, then it works out or something. Um, but Rachel's, what we can draw from it is Rachel is clearly driven by jealousy and she uses children to get up on her sister, which just is pretty, I think, pretty sad. Verse nine, when Leah saw that she had stopped bearing, she took Zilpah, her maid, and gave her to Jacob as a wife. And Leah's maid Zilpah bore Jacob a son. And then Leah said, a troop comes. So Leah's saying, look, I have a whole troop of kids. So she named, she called his name Gad, which means troop. And Leah's made Zilpah bore Jacob a second son. And then Leah said, I am happy for the daughters will call me blessed. So she called his name Asher, which means happy. Uh, some of them got good names. So now there's four from Leah, two from Bilhah and two from Zilpah, which puts the Leah clan ahead six, two. Um, and, and now Reuben, which means the which is the eldest of these sons, went in the days of wheat harvest and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. And then Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. This seems like an odd addition to the story, right? Because we still have more kids to make. And you'd think, why mandrakes? And we could do a thing where we try to guess an ad, but I've already looked it up. Um, mandrakes or doodahs, <laughs> this is where the term duda comes from. Uh, dudas in Hebrew are love apples. <laughs> and that's because mandrakes in almost every uh, culture, especially in pagan in pagan religions. Uh, so with Leah and Rachel and taking the idol from, well, that's next chapter. They have some attachment to these idols and pagan rituals. And they're, they're, ascribing meaning to mandrakes means that they were full on or they really did believe some of these kind of wives tales so to speak um it could be in like in jeremiah 24 1 it could be like a basket of another fruit but the way they act with these mandrakes 
they're probably actually mandrakes. They're not some other fruit or a basket. Um, the other reference to mandrakes in the Bible is in the Song of Solomon. Need I say more? Uh, 7.13, if you're writing down passages, they talk about mandrakes giving off a fragrance or an odor. But they do more than that in pagan rituals. They are an aphrodisiac. You can put a bit of mandrake and grind it up and put it in your drink. And it's actually a hallucinogenic and a narcotic. So it gets you drugged up and ready for an evening with your spouse. Um, There's also lots of legends that go with mandrakes. You can put them in your pocket and they help make babies. You can put them under your pillow at night when you go to bed and that will help you make babies. Basically anywhere you can stick a mandrake root in your life and keep it near to your body, it will help you make babies. Um, There is no medical or scientific evidence behind this whatsoever. If you have too much mandrake, it can also kill you, like any narcotic. You can overdose on it. So the fact that Reuben is out gathering mandrakes for his mom says that she has looped in the whole group of sons to help her make more babies. Like, this is a family division, and it's go, it goes right to the sons. And so Reuben brings in a basket of these mandrakes. He's like, Mom, I got baby-making root for you. And you can put it in your pillow and do what you want with it. Um... And then, of course, Rachel walks in and she wants the mandrakes. And what brother and sister have not had this moment where one of them has something that the other wants and they just demand it? Well, Leah, well, verse 15, but she said to her, is it a small matter that you've taken away my husband? Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? Like, what's beyond you, Rachel? You jealous, nasty sister that just wants everything. At this point, they have working arrangements. Leah seems to have been cut off from Jacob. Uh, and we'll see that later too, where she kind of demands a night with her husband. So Jacob's pretty much hanging out with Rachel at this point. We have full hostility between the sisters. And in Genesis 2:23, where God said, "Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall cleave to his wife; they shall be one flesh." It shows that God's wisdom was in that plan. Later in the law itself, Leviticus 18:18, 18, 18, it says, "Neither shalt thou take a wife to her sister." to vex her and uncover her nakedness besides the other in the same lifetime. In other words, there's actually a law in Leviticus that says you can't marry your wife's sister too. Um, And it kind of comes to this idea of this is just a horrible idea. Sisters aren't going to do well if they're sharing a guy. And Rachel said, therefore he will lie with you tonight for your son's mandrakes. So this is where we cheapen and objectify the husband. Uh, There's a biblical passage where that happens. And at this point, Jacob is nothing more than a trade-off or a commodity that these sisters are trading with each other. Jacob is not leading his family in any way, shape, or form, because there should be a point where there's a stop to this, but there's not. Um, verse 16, when Jacob came out of the field in the evening, working long days, we see, I, I think that's a cool thing about Jacob is that he is still working hard, even though he's, he's doing well. Leah went out to meet him and said, You must come in to me, for I have surely hired you with my son's mandrakes. And he lay with her that night. No argument from Jacob. You know, and, but at this, I can't imagine, like as a husband, when I come home from a day of work and I'm tired, the last thing you want is somebody saying, You have to do something that night. Even when it's something as pleasurable as laying with your wife. It's just a tough thing. When you come home, you kind of want to breathe. So I'm feeling like Jacob doesn't have a lot of space here, but that's my own husbandly perspective. 
verse 17. I always used to tell Steph for many years, just give me 20 minutes. Give me a half an hour. Even the kids when they were little and they were like, Daddy, 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 Daddy. I'm like, Daddy's going to sleep for 30 minutes. And then you have 100% of Daddy, not 70% of Daddy. You, you get all of me, but it's going to take a while. And then Mom would sick them on me after about 30 minutes and they would come <laughs> jump on me. Um, what verse am I on? 17? Oh. You must come into me, for surely I've hired you with my son Mandrakes. And he lay with her that night. And God listened to Leah. And she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. And I call her Leah. I know, is, is it Leah? Leah? I keep wanting to say Leah because I'm a Star Wars fan. Um, and Leah said, God has given me my wages because I have been given my maid to my husband. So she called his name Issachar. Uh, which means recompense or reward, prize. Not sure if she's repenting here or if she's feeling rewarded. Either way, um, she's putting words in God's mouth just like Rachel did. God isn't saying this to her. She's making up what God's saying to her. Verse 19, then Leah conceived again, and she bore Jacob a sixth son. And Leah said, God has endowed Zabad, me, with a good endowment and dowry, Zabed. So it sounds like God has endowed me with an endowment, but it's Zabad, Zabed. She's doing a play on words in the Hebrew, uh, now my, which is important because when she names her son, it's Zebedulun. Now my husband will dwell with me because I have borne him six sons. So she called his name Zebulun, exalted her to dwell with. Afterwards, she bore a daughter and she called her name Dinah, which means judgment. But in context, there's no explanation for why she named her Dinah, so it could just be Dinah, I mean, that she liked the name. So three or more from three more from Leah. Uh, Dinah will be a key character in a coming story, so they mention her here. Um, there could be more sons and daughters that we don't know about, um, but we are told about these. The score right now, then, is six sons for Leah, two for Bilhah, two from Zilpah, Rachel, Goose Egg, zero. So Rachel's probably got the love of the husband, but she doesn't have what the world would recognize as a blessing, which is to have those kids. So in verse 22, then God remembered Rachel. And he listened to her and he opened her womb. I like that he listened to her, which implies that Rachel has been praying to him. So we see a Rachel in the first, you know, 20 verses here that's pretty immature and even mean and giving her this competition to her sister. And in verse 22, it, at least it implies that Rachel started to turn to the Lord and the, the Lord listened to her and opened her womb. And she conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. So she called his name Joseph, which means he is added or he is given. And then said, the Lord shall add to me another son. So there's 11 sons. So Jacob will, will be with Laban for another nine years. And Reuben's getting old enough then to do that gathering work. In other words, when Reuben was collecting those mandrake roots, he was probably in the you know six to nine years old range. Um, the opening of the womb we've seen a couple times. This is an odd conversation to have, but I thought it was worth noting. There's a clear biblical implication here that God ultimately chooses childbirth. That when somebody's going to have a baby or not have a baby... God really has some control over that. There's biology going on, no doubt, 
But from a biblical perspective, the claim is that when that womb is closed and then it's opened, that that's God doing the work. We might think of Joseph as the one, but he's not going to be. God blesses and uses him to save the brothers of the line of Judah, but Judah's actually the one that's going to carry the line of Messiah, and Levi's the one that's going to carry the priesthood. So as much as Joseph becomes the Favis character with the nice colored coat, he's not the one that's going to be the line of Jesus, or that's not going to be the, the part that he plays in the Bible. Verse 25, It came to pass when Rachel had born Joseph, that Jacob said to Laban, Send me away, that I might go to my own place and my own country. Give me my wives and my children for whom I have served you and let go. For you know my service which I have done for you. And Laban said to him, Please stay. For if I have found favor in your eyes, for I have learned by experience that the Lord has blessed me for your sake. And then he said, name your wages and I'll give it. This is an interesting transition. So we have the the tribes of Israel have now, in the person of, of, of sons, been born. We're still missing uh, uh, Benjamin. He'll come in a little bit. Um, but we have this spot where the, the, the Jacob has his family, his initial family. He goes to Laban, his uncle, and he wants to take off. I'm ready to go. Um, and Laban wants him to stick around. So Jacob's work for Laban is recognized at this point as having a lot of value. That means Jacob's hardworking. He talks about Canaan as my country, even though he's been here for anywhere from 14 to 21 years, right? So I think it's 20 years we're going to see. Um, and that he's learned by experience. And... I think Laban says, I've learned by experience that the Lord has blessed me for your sake. It's wonderful when people in our lives say, because I've known you, I've seen part of the Lord. Or there's part of me that sees Jesus in you, or you've lived in such a way that I recognize that God is real. Because look at what God does through you, and it keeps happening. The only thing I could think of in my life that was anything like that was, I have a good friend that uh, I see once every year, every couple years. But back in the college days, we met every week to play board games and, and, and role-playing games and stuff like that. So we hung out a lot. And after we'd known each other for about 10, 15 years after college, he would always say, I've just never seen anyone where the Lord seems to just bless everything you do. And he, and he goes, so no matter what's going on in your life, I know pretty much you always land on your feet because it's like God has you and it's uncanny how that works. And I feel like that's what Laban is saying to um, Jacob in this instance is just like, I realize that I have more now than I would have because God seems to bless what you do. So Jacob said to him, you know how I've served you and how much livestock has been with me for what, what you had before I came was little and it has increased a great amount. The Lord has blessed you since I've come here. And now when I, when I, when shall I also provide for my own house? So he said, what shall I give you? Jacob's trying to lay this down with Laban and point out like, you realize Laban, you didn't have a lot when I got here and now you have a lot. And it's been because I've been helping to manage your herds and I've been taking care of things for you. And Jacob said, you shouldn't give me anything. If you will do this thing for me, I will again feed and keep your flock. So I'm going to actually keep working for you, but I want to make a deal with you. So pick up this deal because I'm going to geek out on this in a sec because it's brilliant. Let me pass through all your flock today, removing from there all the speckled and spotted sheep and all the brown ones among the lambs, and the spotted and speckled from among the goats, and these shall be my wages. So my righteousness will answer me for me in time to come, when the subject of my wages comes before you, 
everyone that's not speckled and spotted among the goats and brown among the lambs will be considered stolen if it's with me. And Laban said, oh, that it were according to your word. In other words, yes, let's do that. In other words, he doesn't want payment from Laban. He wants to take the sheep that you don't want in your herd. The reason speckled, spotted, and brown sheep aren't any good is that they don't take dye very well. So one of the three major purposes of sheep is the wool. And you can take that wool and, of course, shear the sheep and weave it into fabric. But the best wool is the stuff that takes the dyes the best. And the best color to take dyes is white, which is why a spotless lamb is the primo lamb, because you get all that white wool for the, the duration of that lamb's life. And you can dye it whatever color you want to dye it. It actually holds the color really well. So when he says, you shall not give me anything, he's basically saying, I'll take your leftovers. I'll take the, the, the leather and the meat goats and lambs and you don't really they're the ones you wouldn't have used anyways so you can give me those and i'll take those so there's going to be a period of time here where anytime one of those sheep are born jacob's just going to take it out of laban's flock and put it over in a separate flock that will grow and become his own flock um so it's it's kind of and it's interesting because it's kind of a slap in labels the verse 33 is kind of a slap in laban's face so my righteousness will answer me in a time to come. When the subject of my wages comes before you, everyone that's not speckled and spotted. In other words, there's going to be a time where people question which lambs I've taken out of this flock, and I want to be beyond reproach. I want it to be really easy. If it's speckled or spotted, it's because it was one that God made that was speckled or spotted that was meant to be for my herd. Um, and sure enough, in times to come, the sons of Laban will complain, and this will, that situation will happen. And then there'll be a clear separation between the flocks. Um, so we'll see that happen. If you want to read ahead to 31.1, that's the topic of that story, what's going on. So 35, verse 35. So he removed that day the male goats that were speckled and spotted and all the female goats that were speckled and spotted and everyone that had some white on it and all of the brown ones among the lambs and gave them to the hand of his sons. And then he put three days journey between himself and Jacob and Jacob fed the rest of Laban's flocks. So now that he's got sons, he's got shepherds. So they can manage the Jacob flock. And they do that flock three days walk away from Laban's flock. So they're splitting up the family a little bit. That's a long way to move sheep. But it also puts the sheep out of Laban's sight. So that flock can grow and Laban won't know how big that flock is getting, which is brilliant for Jacob to do. He's being really smart because he knows Laban is greedy. <laughs> and we're going to see that that's the case with Laban in a second. So he's parting ways with them. He makes it super clear. He puts three days between their herds, and he's got a bunch of sons, 11 sons, that could be moving those sheep back and forth as new ones get born that are speckled or spotted. Um, verse 37. Now Jacob took for himself rods of green. Oh, one more thought about speckled or spotted. I love the fact or the image that God's going to take the cast-offs from the herd and make them his own. And I think that's really consistent with bi biblical messages, um, especially where it says we're fools for Christ's sake, but, but we are wise in Christ, we are weak, but when we are strong, we are honorable and we are despised. In First Colossians one, it's this idea that um, 
that the weak become strong in God's eyes. God takes the things of this world that are despised and he makes them into things that are precious and valuable. And that's the way Jacob is going to take that approach to how to separate himself from Laban and, and be distinct and set apart is he's going to take the weak and work with them. It's kind of like digging wells. I'm just going to take the stuff you don't want. I'm going to move to the land you don't want and God's going to bless me there. God can bless me anywhere. It's like a Dr. Seuss book. Um, verse 37. Now Jacob took for himself... Okay, I'm going to really geek out on this because I like wood to start with. So it gave me an excuse to start, to go through here. But I think this is really almost miraculous, but it's easy to read over if you're just reading in your own Bible study. Now Jacob took for himself rods of green poplar and of the almond and chestnut trees. It might say hazelnut in one of your in one of your translations. Peeled white strips in them and exposed the white which was in the rods and the rods which he had peeled he set before the flocks in the gutters or in the troughs, the watering troughs. Uh, in the watering troughs where the flocks came to drink so that they should conceive when they came to drink. This makes, this is weird, right? Uh, so the flocks conceived before the rods and the flocks brought forth streaked, speckled, and spotted. And then Jacob separated the lambs and made the flocks face towards the streaked and all the brown in the flock of Laban. And he put his own flocks by themselves and did not put them with Laban's flocks. So, this sound at first glance this almost looks like Jacob's being superstitious like he's taking three different kinds of wood so we got to look at those pieces of wood and he sticks them in front of the sheep while they're drinking their water which is a weird thought and then they have speckled spotted sheep because they're looking or doing what would the wood have anything to do with what color wool the sheep are going to have and it you think well that's just kind of weird so I started doing research on sheep breeding and all sorts of things and like because this made this is like wow this is just weird um the rods that they're talking about are like a walking stick they're not the walking sticks or the rod of rulership so like in psalm 23 when it says thy rod and thy staff come for me this is a different word this rod just means a branch or a stick of wood right um the other place in the bible you see this branch or this stick of wood balaam uses it to hit his donkey with so not a rod of leadership and David has one with him as a shepherd boy when he's picking up the stones to hit Goliath. We see this word pop up there too in 1 Samuel 17. The gutters are rahat or, or the watering trough. That's not tough. So what what's with the superstition and what does the wood have anything to do with conception? So poplar is, well, here's one way to look at these three um, three woods. And I you can take your pick as to which you like. Poplar is a white tree or a whitish tree. Um, so when you look at its bark, it's almost you can use it for pulp or paper making. It's so light. And when you pull the bark off, it leaves like a milky sap to it. And it can be treated that way. Hazel or the almond has white nuts and white blooms on the tree. It has silvery bark. So you see a pattern there already. And then it has really curly branches. Um, and a lot of people believe hazelnuts or almond nuts are good for the brain and uh, chestnuts are the same way. The chestnut tree has white blooms on the tree and there's a fuzzy light, um, either super light green or, or light covering over the, over the chestnut. Um, and you can ground those nuts down. You can ground all, the hazelnuts or the chestnuts, you can ground down into a powder 
and you can put that powder into water and make a milk with it. So poplar has milk that kind of pours out of it, and almond and chestnut, or the, the word, by the way, for almond could either be hazelnut or almond, um, all of which can make a kind of milk, which we still drink today. So in other words, if through that process, he's taking these different kinds of trees and he's giving nutrition to the sheep, which makes a ton of sense. So when those sheep are coming, when the sheep come walking up and they're speckled or spotted, he knows they're already likely to make speckled or spotted little lambs and the speckled and spotted lambs go into his herd. So he gives them protein and nutrients to help them conceive, which is kind of smart. Um, Today, chestnut trees are largely cut down in the United States, but this is the only place in the world they're cut down. Um, when they first, when the pioneers first came to the United States, they looked at the Appalachian Mountains, and when the chestnut trees were in bloom, the entire mountain range would look white because they would bloom these white blossoms. And they got cut down to build all of early America. So virtually the East Coast and all those cities were built with chestnut trees coming out of the mountains. At this point, they've pretty much killed them all, and other trees have grown up. But that's where the name the Smoky Mountains original, originally came from, is that they look like clouds. They look like smoke. So combining the scientists, uh, we have these trees that could have that kind of piece. The poplar is also a large tree. It gives shade in Hosea 4. It's aromatic, and it smells good. The hazel or almond tree, uh, this is the only biblical use that it has. But at that time, it was associated with fertility. And the chestnut tree is a, or, or another word for it is a plane tree, is strong. It's a beautiful tree. It's grown in every major culture. And it has almost 20% tannin in it, which means it's rot resistant. So, okay, I know I've gone down this path. Jacob has fed these sheep three different kinds of trees. The poplar is a softer wood, but it's aromatic and it smells good. The hazelnut is, is high protein and has fertility properties to it. At least they believe they did. And then he gives the chestnut tree, which is the most strong and beautiful tree that they would have known of in this region of the world. In other words, he's feeding the sheep for the leather, the meat, and the wool. And he's, trying, he's breeding sheep in these ways. And when it says he puts it in the trough, essentially he's taking these branches, cutting off some of the bark so the sap goes into the water, and he's feeding a high protein diet to these sheep. So you get to the research. Sure enough, high-protein diets actually help sheep to conceive. They also help sheep to conceive more males than females. It has an effect on gender when you give the sheep. And this is research that's coming out of more current, modern-day kinds of things. All three of these woods are especially high in protein. Two of the woods can be ground into a milk, and it's an amazing dietary supplement. So that begs the question, how did Jacob know all of this? And how he knows it, he's, he's spent the last 70 years breeding sheep. And so he's probably been really intentional about trying different things, experimenting. He's a full-on scientist, because you don't learn these kinds of things unless you kind of play with it. So he's giving dietary supplements to the sheep that look like the ones he's, he gets to inherit. And sure enough, those sheep start making more babies than the other sheep. The other theory, which is maybe the simpler approach, is that when there's something to chew on in the water trough, the sheep stay there longer, and then the rams have more opportunity, and they just the sheep are just hanging out at the water trough, and the rams can come up and do their thing. Either way, he's intentionally breeding the kinds of sheep that would go into his herd. 
Um, so Jacob is using extreme skill and he's trusting that God's going to bless that skill and grow his, his herd. Uh, he does something similar with the cattle too. Uh, with the cattle, it's not about the color of the fur, but about the strength. Verse 41, it came to pass whenever the stronger livestock conceived that Jacob placed the rods before the eyes of the livestock in the gutters that they might conceive among the rods. But when the flocks were feeble, he did not put them in. So the feebler were Laban's cows and the stronger were Jacob's cows. Thus the man came exceedingly prosperous and had large flocks, male and female servants and camels and donkeys. Because sheep and, and, and cattle being strong in the herds means you get to buy more camels um, and donkeys because that's what you buy with all of your herds. The point of the years of work, the fruit of the experience, I read this and I think Jacob was brilliant. And just as one of the first prob probable scientists in the thing. Otherwise, he's just some weird guy throwing sticks in front of the sheep thinking that's going to make a difference. Um, I think it's much more plausible that he actually knew what he was doing and that he'd been doing this for decades and he was an extremely good at what he was doing. Um, the research I was referring to um, uh, was... 1967, we, we, we found out that that protein would help with, uh, with fertility. And in 2008, we found that less fats would make for more males. Um, and if you wanted to breed for meat and leather, you wanted more males in your herd. So current science agrees that supplementing the diet gives higher conception rates, strength of breeding, and more males. Verse 43, and thus the man became exceedingly prosperous. That's an understatement. And the Hebrew, it's parats ma'od ma'od rab. And we say exceedingly prosperous, but it was actually more like exceedingly, exceedingly lots of prosperous. Or bursting out exceedingly, exceedingly lots of prosperous. So there's four Hebrew words there. Um, so really putting an emphasis on Jacob was going gangbusters here. David Gusick summarizes the Jacob recipe for success in life. Uh, this is not the prosperity gospel, by the way. This is this is more the Jacob gospel, um, how to be prosperous. Genesis 30, 25, he doesn't make wealth his goal. He goes where God wants him to go. So he's listening to God. That's the first step to success and prosperity. It isn't putting sticks before sheep. It's, it's obeying God. Don't be afraid to work with others to increase their wealth before you work for yourself. That's Genesis 30, 27. He just got done working for Laban for 20 years. So that idea that prosperity comes out of our, our own efforts and whatnot, it doesn't. It comes from serving God first, being willing to help other people prosper second, and then third, he works hard. And he dedicates himself to his employer's success, So which is verses Genesis 30, 26, and, and here in Genesis 31, 38 through 42, he dedicates himself to his employer's success. And then last but not least, in Genesis 30, 31, he just trusts God. Um, so my righteousness shall answer for me. Remember when he said that to Laban? So this Jacob recipe for success is to pray to God, follow his will, work hard, work for other people, and trust that God will bring success, which is not prosperity gospel. It's like the opposite of prosperity gospel. Um, but that's how Jacob becomes successful exceedingly, exceedingly. Genesis 31, verse 1, Now Jacob heard the words of Laban's sons, and remember, this was going to be a problem, and now it is, saying, Jacob has taken away all that was our father's, and from that what was our father's, he was acquired all this wealth. And Jacob saw the countenance of Laban, and indeed it was not favorable towards him as before. So he's noticed his boss isn't quite as nice to him anymore. 
Um, I love how Jacob ignores Laban's sons altogether. He watches his boss, not what his peers would say about him. You see that? Envy puts Jesus on the cross, and envy is what's getting Jacob right here. In Matthew's twenty-seven eighteen, it says, For he knew they handed him over because of envy. Throughout life, you're going to find the more successful you are, the more people envy that success or envy you doing well. This is probably uh, worst with bridesmaids, <laughs> that they'll start to envy each other and how good they look in their dresses. But it happens between sisters, Rachel and Leah. It happened, it's happened so many times in the Bible so far, and it's going to continue to happen. Human beings envy the success of each other. How rare is a brother or sister that celebrates our successes with us? that takes joy when we when we have victories in life alongside us, when so many people on the earth just envy when those successes come. So Jacob desires home, the nest is stirred, and now he has his personal direction. Verse 4, so Jacob sent and he called Rachel and Leah to, to the field, to his flock, and he said to them, I see your father's countenance, that it is not favorable towards me as before, but the God of my father has been with me. Romans 8.31 says, If God is for us, who can be against us? And you know that with all my might, I've served your father. That was part of the recipe of success. Be willing to serve people. Yet your father has deceived me and changed my wages ten times. This is the first we hear of this. This kind of just went unspoken. But apparently he keeps changing the wages. Um, we know that he changed the wages for the bride price for Leah and Rachel. We know that he, he swapped that out, but apparently he just keeps doing this. But God did not allow him to hurt me. If he said, the speckled shall be your wages, then all the flocks bore speckled. And then he said, if the streaked shall be your wages, then all the flocks bore streaked. So God's taken away the livestock of your father and given them to me. So what's going on here, and this is why the sons are getting upset, is this whole generation of little sheep that are coming into the flock and probably cattle, and Jacob is playing with this. He is helping with the breeding and encouraging it. But all the babies are going over to Jacob's flocks. And the sons are starting to say, like, come on, like, we're not getting new sheep in our flocks anymore. So the population of Laban's herd is stopped, or it might even be going down a bit as they use some of the older sheep. Um, but clearly God is building up a different flock. I wouldn't be surprised if some of the sons made the three-day journey to go spy on Jacob's herds and noticed how big they were getting. Sheep will breed twice a year, so it won't take long for this process to happen. Uh, verse 10, And it happened at the time when the flocks were conceived that I lifted my eyes, and I saw in a dream, and behold, the rams which leaped upon the flocks were streaked and speckled and gray-spotted. And then the angel of God spoke to me in a dream, saying, Jacob. And I said, Here I am. And he said, lift your eyes now and see all the rams which sleep on the flocks are streaked, speckled, and gray spotted, for I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. So Jacob's claiming that the reason he made this deal with Laban is because God told him to, which was step one of success with Jacob, which is do what God tells you to do. So he makes this weird deal and God helps with the breeding. Jacob does his part with the breeding too. And this is the second time that God talks to Jacob. God told him to make a deal for the lambs. He did it. God sees injustice, and in providence, he reminds Jacob that he's the same God that he met in Bethel, because he says in verse 13, I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed the pillar and you made a vow to me, now arise, get out of this land, and return to the land of your family. So it's been 20 years since he's heard from God, right? It's been a long time. 
So I like how God introduces himself and reminds him who he, like, I'm that God, the one that you talk to here. Um, it's very humble of God to say that. You, you would think he wouldn't have to, but he does. And it's time to go. He's basically saying it's time to move and get your family out of here. Um, and another thought that Jacob has brought both Leah and, and Rachel in, he talks to them as equals. So from what we see from the sisters is they're competing for top spot. What we see from Jacob is he treats people equally or he treats them both fairly. Um, verse 14, then Rachel and Leah answered and said to him, is there still any portion or inheritance for us in our father's house? Are we not considered strangers by him? For he has sold us and also completely consumed our money for all the riches which God has taken from our father and are really ours and our children's. Now then, whatever God has said to you, do it. So this is the first time Leah and Rachel agree on anything. And they agree on saying, yes, let's get the heck out of here. Um, not a good thing when your kids rise up and they don't call you blessed. Rachel and Leah don't have a lot of regard for their father. Um, and apparently the sons from verse 1 are getting the inheritance and Rachel and Leah, Laban has given that responsibility to Jacob and really hasn't helped out very much. Um, this might be what motivates Rachel to steal later in verse 19, and we'll get to that in a second. Um, I think it's cool that they say, whatever God has said to you, um, do it, and that both of the wives really have come to honor and respect Jacob, and they support him in what they're doing. Um, and is there any portion or inheritance for us in our father's house? The answer is no. That's a rhetorical question. What Laban has or what we might see as the world has, no, the world has nothing for us. Let's follow God because there's really nothing else there. Verse 17, then Jacob rose and set his sons and his wives on camels and he carried away all his livestock and all his possessions which he had gained and acquired livestock which he had gained in Padamaram to go to his father in Isaac in the land of Canaan. God says to move and they move. This is also a clue to the wealth that he's accumulated because if he's got 11 sons and two wives and two servant wives, that, that's a lot of camels, which are really, it's like having automobiles. They're expensive. They cost a lot to feed. They don't have a lot of use other than transportation. Uh, so Jacob would have been an extremely wealthy man at this point. Verse 19. Now Laban had gone to shear the sheep and Rachel had stolen the household idols that were her father's. I don't know why the two are associated Maybe there's something with shearing the sheep that he would do some sort of prayer or ritual to some god and he would need his idols to do that. Verse 20, And Jacob stole away, unknown to Laban the Syrian, in that he did not tell him that he intended to flee. So he fled with all that he had and arose and crossed the river and headed towards the mountains of Gilead. So in verses 19 and 20, the same word is being used for stole. And Rachel... Um, we're going to see uses that same word for stealing comes up when Rachel steals the idol. So we can translate that pretty accurately as that this is a, a, a theft. Um, when Jacob steals away in verse 20, um, he's stealing himself when Rachel steals the idol. And I think it's kind of a what you take for yourself or what you take away and whether or not you have a right to it is not implied there. So Rachel maybe didn't have a right to steal the precious metal because that idol was probably a big chunk of gold or silver. Um, 
And then Laban's going to go after him. He's going to go after his most valuable manager, and he's going to go after this idol. In verse 22, And Laban was told on the third day, because the flocks, remember, were three days away, on the third day that Jacob had fled. And remember that Jacob had been growing his flock. So they go and they take off, and it takes a while to figure it out. Verse 23, Then he took his brother with him and pursued him for seven days' journey, and he overtook him in the mountains of Gilead. But God had come to Laban the Syrian in a dream by night and said to him be careful that you that you speak to Jacob neither good nor bad um, Steph always likes the but God verses so verse 24 is a but God verse whenever things are about to go off track for God's plan there's usually a verse that says but God but God steps in and has an action in this case God's hand or intervention is extremely light he basically tells Laban to be nice right be fair be nice don't attack jacob and and this happens uh i think in a way that is allows jacob to get away which is what god told him to do so laban overtook jacob now jacob had pitched his tent in the mountains and laban his brethren pitched in the mountains of gilead not far from the jordan river and laban said to jacob what have you done that you've stolen away unknown to me and carried away my daughters like captives taken with the sword. Why did you flee away secretly and steal away from me and not tell me? For I might have sent you away with joy and songs, a timbrel and a harp. We could have had a big feast and sent you off. And you did not allow me to kiss my sons and my daughters. Now you have done foolishly in, in so doing. It is in my power to do you harm. But the God of your father spoke to me last night, saying, Be careful that you speak to Jacob, neither good nor bad. And now you've surely gone, because you greatly long for your father's house. But why did you steal my goods, my gods? So Laban has a point, and he's chastising Jacob because he snuck off. Why'd you do that? The answer to why he did is because God, Jacob was told by God to leave. Remember, Jacob just obeyed God. And God didn't say, go back to Laban and make sure it's okay. He said, leave. And Jacob is listening to God, not Laban. And having been in the workplace for many, many years, this comes up a lot. When people hire you and they pay you wages, there's a piece of humanity that thinks they own you. And there's a point where, as an employee, you have to set your boundaries with your boss because they will use you like a slave if they can until you say, I have to take care of my my family or I don't work on Sundays or no Wednesday nights are church for me and I got to take I'm sorry I can't help you with work stuff you got to find somebody else and a lot of times owner some employers are okay with that and they'll be fine with it and some employers that really bothers them that they don't own you and I think Laban was one of those kinds of people but Jacob doesn't go to his boss to figure out how to run his life he goes to his God to figure out how to run his life um notice that Laban says it's in my power to do you harm to do you harm means to kill him it's in my, I have a right to kill you because you've taken my daughters which is another kind of thing notice that Laban says implies that everything is his he says my daughters my children he, which means he ignores the deals that he's made he ignores the marriages that he's made he's ignored Jacob's work and wages which he said he could have all the wages he wants and at the end of it all, Laban still sees or perceives that all of it is his. Look at verse 40, 44 too. It's a very still thing. Laban gives, um, but he still thinks he owns everything. 
So Jacob was kind of right to think Laban would have more conditions, more deals that he wanted to make. Um, and Laban gives a lot of sweet words, but at the end of the day, the guy's a liar. And he doesn't, everything seems to get twisted in his favor. So he's not seeking Jacob's blessing here. Notice that he's not seeking Jacob's God here. He rejects the covenants, the laws, and he follows his own will. The world does this too. They take your work, your gifts, your talents, and they're happy to claim them as their own. Laban never owes anyone. He never gives anything away freely. He just takes and he sees it as his right to take it. And at this point in life, Jacob has become wise to Laban. And he's understood how Laban works a little bit. One last thing to pick up from that passage. Notice how Laban says, the God of your father. Wait, I thought Laban's family served the Lord too. But at this point, we know that Laban has idols. We know that he looks for them when he goes to shear his sheep. Um, and we see a person who believes there is a God, your God, but he doesn't serve him. It's not Laban's God. Um, and that's kind of true even with demons. They, they believe in God. So the question isn't, do you believe in God or not? The question is, do you serve God? Um, so it doesn't necessarily mean that you're a good person just because you believe in the God of Abraham, but it does, uh, it does set a precedent with Laban as to how he's going to behave. Verse 31, then Jacob answered and said to Laban, and I love this answer, because I was afraid. For I said, perhaps you would take your daughters from me by force. Fear is never a good motivator. And Jacob is being operating by fear here, but at least he's honest about it. God never gives us the spirit of fear, according to the Bible, but the enemies will. Uh, so in this case, Jacob's responding in that fear. Perhaps he's assuming, uh, perhaps at some point Jacob's thinking he can read Laban's mind. I think a better response from Jacob here would have been, because God told me to. But he doesn't really want to put that in front of Laban because he's probably also fearful of how Laban would react to that kind of bluntness. Verse 32, whoever, with whomever you find your gods, do not let him live. In the presence of our brethren, identify what I have of yours and take it with you. So there's a conflict between gods here. At least that's the framework because Laban says, your God, your father's God. And here Jacob is saying, with whomever you find your gods. So they're not his idols. He doesn't want them. There's no, there's no power to it. And Jacob says, why don't you look through all my stuff and see what you can find? And if you can find your stuff, then you can take it. Uh, Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen them. So Jacob says, take what you think is yours. And this goes back to chapter 30, where Jacob basically says, I don't want anything from you. I want to take nothing that you can claim as your own away from you. I want a clean break. Typology-wise, this is exactly what our relationship with Christ should look like. We want a clean break from our old lives. We don't want to take anything with from our old life, but how often do we still take little pieces from our old life back with us? Little things that we want to hold on to for security or whatever reason. So in verse 33, Laban went into Jacob's tent. He goes first to Jacob's, uh, which shows that he trusts Jacob the least. Then he goes into Leah's tent, and then in the two maids' tents, but he did not find them. Whose tent did he miss? Rachel's. Then he went out of Leah's tent and entered Rachel's tent. And now Rachel had taken the household idols, which means teraphim, and put them in the camel's saddle and then sat on the camel. 
And Laban searched all around the tent, but he did not find them. Why would Rachel steal the idol? So I have thoughts as a few different reasons why she might have stole the idol. You can probably come up with a few on your own. Maybe she believed that that idol had power. So because they were divination tools for Laban in, in chapter 30, verse 27, maybe she took them because she was mad at her dad and she didn't want him worshiping idols. That's a thought. Another possibility, and it doesn't tell us why she stole it. Maybe she stole it because she thought they were hers. And we do have some indication of that because remember the two daughters said, is there nothing left for our inheritance? Does Laban have nothing to give us? So maybe she stole it because she thought it was her right. Maybe she stole it out of revenge. Um, and maybe she stole it to keep her dad away from idolatry and she was planning to melt it down for the gold value. I think she stole it out of greed, that she just wanted it. Um, and she's Rachel. She kind of thinks of Rachel. Verse 35. And she said to her father, Let it not displease my Lord that I cannot rise before you, for the manner of women is with me. And she's, and he searched but did not find the household idols. So I can't get off the camel because I have my period would be a modern translation for that. And most guys don't touch that. And uh, I remember it was kind of a get out of class free card for middle school girls in my class. I, I have a women's thing. I have to take her. Okay, goodbye. So like there was no question there. And Laban's the same way. I'm not going to make you get off the camel. And she's saying, I can't get off the camel because it's my time of the month. Okay. Um, then Jacob was angry and he rebuked Laban and Jacob answered Laban and said, what's my trespass? What's my sin? What is it that you've so hotly pursued me? Notice the change in tone from Jacob. He is not conciliatory anymore. He's been really above reproach with Laban. He has been nice to Laban. He has served him for 20 years. He has given his heart and soul to helping Laban prosper. He's been good. And at the end of all of it, Laban has been a selfish jerk with him, which is true to Laban's character. And at this point, Laban, or Jacob gets angry. And there's no indication here that that's a sin. This is a righteous anger. You know, Laban, you're, you're coming after me. You're saying I've taken things from you, and I haven't. And it's none of, I don't want anything from you. I've said that. I've been above the board with you all the time. And here you are pursuing me, thinking you have a right to everything I own. You want to kill me. You're claiming I've stole your stuff, but you look for it and you can't find it. Um, and he's pushing back on Laban a little bit. Might help that he knows Laban had a dream from his God saying, don't touch him. Although you've searched my things, what part of your household things have you found? Set it here before my brethren and your brethren that they may make a judge before us. Why don't you take what you found that was yours and put it on the table? And there's nothing. These 20 years I've been with you, your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried their young. I've not eaten the rams from your flock. That which was torn by beasts, I didn't bring to you, or bear the, I bore the loss of it. You required it from my hand, whether stolen by day or by stolen by night. And there I was, in the day the drought consumed me, and in the frost by night, and my sleep departed from my eyes. Thus I've been in your house twenty years, and I've served you fourteen years for your two daughters, and six years for your flock, and you've changed my wages ten times." Buddy, I've been fair with you for 20 years. I've, you've been more than compensated for my work. There's seven ways that Jacob has held up to his deal. There's no evidence of theft, which is good because Jacob didn't steal. He's given him 20 years of service. He's tended his flocks carefully. There's a history and integrity of not taking or stealing from Laban. 
he's covered losses. So when you bring a when a wolf gets a sheep, and you bring it before, the the owner of the herd, you basically are, you want to bring it before to to show that the wolf didn't get to eat the sheep. Like you've killed the wolf, and then you take the remains of the sheep, saying, "Look, the wolf didn't eat it," because wolves would clear it out. But instead of doing that, uh, Jacob would just cover the loss from his own pocket and give it up. He's endured and he's worked hard and he's endured Laban's unfair practices. Changing wages isn't cool. Verse 42, Unless the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Egypt, Isaac had been with me, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. God has seen my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. Jacob's prosperity isn't from theft, and it's not from Laban's generosity. His prosperity's claiming comes from God. And this is where I think Jacob sets him, himself apart as he puts God in front of what he's doing. And for 20 years, he's been an honest guy. How many people in the world today can say that they've been perfectly honest for 20 straight years? Jacob's grown up a bit here. He's put the work in. He knows where he stands. He gives the glory to God and puts God out front. And he remembers that God had a meeting with him when he had nothing. He remembers that night when he had a rock at his head and he had nothing that he could claim for his own. And here he is, he has everything and he's giving God credit for everything. It's all God's. So Jacob correctly understands that Laban would have kept taking and left him with nothing. And he, and he says it right to his face. And Laban answered and said to Jacob, these daughters are my daughters. These children are my children. This flock is my flock. All that you see is mine. But what can I do this day to these da- my daughters and of their children? To whom have they been born? Now therefore come and let us make a covenant, you and I, and let it be a witness between you and me. And this goes back to just employers thinking they own people, right? And you get it pretty clear from Laban here when he's saying these are my daughters and my kids. That's pretty bold. So it would be like me saying to Grant or Katie when they have their own families to say, those are my kids. I own them and I own you and I own everything you've done. And you'd be like, no, I worked for 20 years for what I have. Or better yet, it'd be like my dad coming in saying, you know, I own all your stuff and it's all mine and you wouldn't exist if it wasn't for me. And Laban, that's a pretty bold claim Laban's making. In other words, Jacob was wise and he was right. He knew Laban and he called it all the right way because now what's in Laban's heart is actually coming out his mouth now. Verse 45, so Jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar. And Jacob said to his brethren, gather the stones. And they took stones and they made a heap. When they say a heap, that's an understatement. This would have been a massive collection of stones that was meant to endure time. It would have been a small monument that they built gathered the stones and they took the stones and they made a heap and they ate there on the heap. So this was a big enough heap of stones to eat on top of, right? Like a giant platform. This time Jacob calls everyone together to hear the covenant promise. Remember last time we saw that Laban was doing it to Jacob when he called everyone together at the wedding feast so they could all see who he woke up with the next day. This time Jacob's doing it to Laban. Laban called the pile or called the heap called it Jegur Sadutha, which means pile of stones in Aramean. But Jacob called it Galid, which means witness heap in Hebrew. So they're not even in agreement over what to call this and what language to call it in. Um, There's a distinction in language here, but there's also a distinction in tone. 
the Aramean pile of stones just means a pile of rocks. And that's not the same thing as what Jacob calls it, which the witness heap means this is a covenant marker. And Hebrews would do the covenant markers where they would draw these lines. Essentially, both of them are then giving it a turn where they're basically saying, if you cross this line, it's war. So Gilead becomes a watch point, and this is the first use where we see that. Um, Judges 10, 17 will also have this mitzpah, and uh, Jephthah will pray to a god at this same spot, mitzpah, um, and he will foolishly, you know the story where Je, uh, Jephthah uh, vows his daughter, comes running out of the house, and he vowed the first thing that comes out, I'll give to you. Uh, so it becomes this annual reminder. First Samuel 7, the Lord's help Samuel, helps Samuel judge uses this location as the assembly place for Samuel to judge. In Jeremiah 40:15, Johanan, in this location, asks Jedaliah if he can go and slay Ishmael and scatter the Jews. This site will, for the rest of the Bible, be a site of conflict. It'll be a site where the, the, the two forces war against God's people. Verse 48, we'll wrap it up. Laban said, this heap is a witness between you and me this day. Therefore, its name was called Galid, also Mitzpah. And I just went through all that. Because he said, may the Lord watch between you and me when we are absent from one another. If you afflict my daughters, or if you take any other wives besides my daughters, although no man is with us, see God is the witness between you and me. Um, I'm thinking Jacob had no intentions of taking more wives whatsoever. So it's an interesting thing that Laban is... I think when Jacob got mad at Laban, he backed off. I think he was kind of a bully because he's saying, this is all my stuff. And then Jacob kind of cuts into him and says, look, buddy, I did all this stuff. Back off. And Laban seems to really be backing off now because now all he's saying is, well, don't take any other wives. That's all I ask. Um, then Laban said to Jacob, here's this heap and here is this pillar which I have placed between you and me. The heap is a witness and the pillar is a witness that I will not pass beyond this heap to you, and you will not pass beyond this heap to me uh, and this pillar to me for harm. So, okay, we. It, I remember when uh, when I was a kid, my sister and I would have to ride in the back seat. My sister and I fought all the time. So eventually we took a piece of tape and ran it down the back seat. And if I crossed that tape, she could hit me. And if she crossed that tape, I could hit her. Like, And when we thought, I mean, in my head, she put her toe over that line and I had a right to cut the toe off. I mean, we were nasty to each other as kids. And it got to be where, where there was some really real fisticuffs in the back seat. But it all had to do with that line. Don't cross the line. Uh, this is where boundaries from nations pop up and they become an important thing. So we have a line that's drawn and we're not going to cross that line. The God of Abraham, the God of Nahor, the God of the Father judge between us and Jacob swore by the fear of his father, Isaac. This still shows some insight into Laban. He never really bows here to Elohim. He names him, but Jacob keeps it closer to home and says, I'm going to swear by my own father. And, and, and uh, Jacob offers his sacrifice, verse 54, on the mountain and called his brethren to eat bread. They ate bread and they stayed all night on the mountain. And early in the morning, Laban arose, kissed his sons and daughters and blessed them. And then Laban departed and returned to his place. So 
they part amiably, kind of. They have these war stones set up, and but they part ways. And um, Laban didn't want to cross the God that talked to him. Obviously, God must have spoke to him because he really goes against his own character and he lets it go. It's the last we see of Abraham of Laban. Uh, he serves God's purpose by helping Jacob to prosper, and and he's no longer in the narrative. So like Ishmael, like Esau, instead of seeking Abraham's God, they're jealous of God. All three patriarchs now have brothers that serve themselves over seeking the blessing of God. Because remember, Laban was Abraham's brother. So every single one of them now have brothers that sought themselves versus seeking God. So Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob have Laban, Ishmael, and Esau. Right? So they all have kind of a, a counter counterpart. God re- has now rebuked all three of those brothers that don't seek God. All three of those brothers are left out of the blessing because of their own choices. Um, and, uh, and all of them are discontent people. So they, they don't have the blessing of God and they're discontent and nothing has changed today. There's people who don't want God in their life. They're not blessed. And there are people that are discontent, generally speaking. It's very hard to find older people that have chosen not to walk a path with God that are just content, happy, and peaceful people. So God has once again intervened to protect his children. There's Thanksgiving. They have food. They meet. I think of the pilgrims starting their new settlement. I think of the munchkins in Wizard of Oz celebrating the witch is dead. And Jacob and his people have a feast, and they celebrate, and we're on our own now. This is our own thing. And then when we come back next week, we have to return to the conflict between Jacob and Esau because remember Esau was trying to kill Jacob. It's been 20 years. We need to reunite the brothers and get them back together, which I think is a great example of how we should reconcile with people around us. What do you do when people hate you and, and don't like you and you can come back and reconcile? So we can pray. Dear Lord and King, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for these stories of people that were trying to serve you. Lord, we know in this world there are people that want to take advantage of us. There are people that would take our labors and call it their own. Uh, we know that there are um, just issues between family members and sisters that are competing with each other, and they and it brings this hostility and conflict into our lives, Lord. And we just pray for <clears throat> peace. We pray that as your people we can celebrate and we can feast and we can do it in a way where we've reconciled and agreed with one another on things uh, or we've parted ways with people we just can't agree with. Um, And Lord, we just pray your blessing in that. It's the tough part about life that there are just struggles with people, Lord. And we know that you didn't want it that way and it's not part of your plan, but we also know you can use it for good uh, and you can turn those things into things that, that honor and glorify you. Lord, like Jacob, we want your blessing more than anything. We want that joy, that happiness, and that peace in our life. Lord, give us hearts full of love and care and compassion and concern. Give us wisdom in our work. Help us to be as hardworking as Jacob and to be as knowledgeable about our craft as Jacob to really pursue excellence in all that we do. In Jesus' name, amen. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.